Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. And we're here with The Spotlight. We are your hosts, Ambassador Retired Harry K. Thomas, Jr., and I'm the chief, retired as well. Harry, who do we have today, sir? We are honored to have Lieutenant Colonel Rafael Bush from the U.S. Air Force, who has an amazing history as a pilot, and he's also a scholar, uh, with what we would have called in my day a person of all seasons. So we are honored to have him join us especially as we go in in the midst of Hispanic Heritage Month. Indeed. Rafael, Colonel Bush, thank you for taking the time. Welcome to the spotlight. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's start. Please tell us about yourself. Who's a Lieutenant Colonel promotable, Rafael Bush? (laughs) Hey, uh, welcome or thank you. so, uh, Rafael Bosch, I'm originally from Puerto Rico, um, happily married uh, to, I'm a proud father of two beautiful uh, teenage daughters here. I live in uh, Tampa, Florida. I've been in the Air Force uh, a little over 21 years, uh, commissioned in 2000. Uh, I've done quite a bit over my career, um, flight testing, uh, safety, training, as many folks have done, um, life support, um, and uh, like I mentioned before, I'm a special operations uh, pilot. So I've been doing that for most of my my career and absolutely love it. Well, with two teenage daughters, we are sure you have some hair losing days, but <laughs> <laughs> we've all we've all been through that. But where did you go to high school? Uh, so I'm a, I'm the son of a military father. He's in the U.S. Army for over 22 years. So oh. grew up in that. Cool. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so grew, grew up in that system, uh, and I just so happened to to go to high school in uh, overseas in Germany. I started in Nuremberg High School, a huge, uh, a former uh, military installation for the U.S. Uh, closed that, and then moved up the street to Bamberg, where I graduated high school uh, over there with a, a senior class of twenty six people. So huge, huge. <laughs> wow, that is amazing, Nuremberg. What history? Uh, did you take history away from Nuremberg, having gone to high school there? I, oh, shoot. Absolutely. It was, I tell you, it was just right after the wall came down. So getting to see the transition of Germany, really, from where it was before the unification to where it is now was absolutely amazing. And as far as history, uh, for instance, we played our high school sports games on Soldier Field. Mm-hmm. which is where Hitler actually had his massive propaganda uh, events, you know, where the uh, U.S. and coalition forces detonated that big swastika on top. That field is still there, and that was the field we used for our sports. So, um, yeah, it, it, absolutely fantastic educational experience growing up there and seeing and feeling uh, the history of Europe. Uh, absolutely outstanding. Well, Joseph Goebbels had to be there, and Lonnie Ravishel making the movies, um, the, I'm reading a book now, The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Lawson about Churchill's first year. 
but they they delve a lot into Germany and and mm. their, and their, the failure of Goring's bombers and the luck the British had with the Battle of Britain. So I, I just again wonder if you study that also as a pilot and someone went to high school in Europe. I, I absolutely did, and uh, part of my Air Force education uh, was aviation history, obviously, and. One of the huge failures of uh, Hitler's regime was uh, nominating Goering and uh, his failure to modernize the, uh, the, the Luftwaffe with pace. They had early success, as we all know, and never modernized. And what did we do? You know, the B-17, the Flying Fortress, uh, combined bomber offensive. Uh, so, yeah, the air power was, was, was key back in uh, World War II, and, and that's where they, where they failed. Thank you. Amazing. Yeah, but let's go back because you just go went over probably 30 years of your life, like glanced at it, you know, and, <laughs> and, like, and here I am. <laughs> so let's go back. You know, you are an army brat, right? And tell that I'm going to join the Air Force. Uh, uh, how, how was that? You know, uh, what make you just say, hey, I'm going to join? Versus, you know, I'm going to stay in civilian and pursue all the career. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in, in that system as a military brat, as you said. Really, it's all I knew. And not in a bad way, meaning it's all I knew in the sense that I knew I wanted to serve. I knew I wanted to give back to my country. So um, for me, it was just a matter of what service. Um, I, I felt that I had seen the Army by growing up in the Army with, with my parents as we moved all the way around the world. Um, and I want to try something different, just to see something uh, different. Um, uh, one one chance we had to live on an Air Force installation uh, during uh, my dad's assignment. <laughs> Change your mind. It did. Like, just a little it bit. It looks better than the just, Army. Just, That's what you said. Just a little Go bit. Ahead. <laughs> Go <ahead>. sorry. <laughs> yeah, there, there was uh, just a little bit of an influence in many ways. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was – it was uh, – no harm done. My dad wasn't upset about it. He's still Hua Army all the way. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, I always knew I wanted to serve. That's great. Uh, so, what did you study in gra in grad you know in college in grad school when you graduated? So uh, it, my undergraduate uh, was in biology. So my plan originally was to uh, be a flight surgeon, study to be a flight surgeon in the Air Force. Uh, plan to change like they always do. Um, so I finished, but I still finished my degree in biology. Uh, my next degree uh, was from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and that was a master's of aeronautical science with a focus in management and safety. And my most recent uh, master's degree was the, from the Air Force Command and Staff College. Uh, that was a master's of science and military operational planning. It's Wow. Well, tell us about your 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 undergraduate and graduate days. Emory Riddle is you know well known. They have campuses in Florida and uh, uh, even Arizona. Which branch mm -hmm. Which branch did you go to? So when I did my Emory Riddle Masters, it was distance learning. Uh, it was during the height of the the wars. Um, so I tell you, between sitting in in a bunk somewhere trying to get degrees and trying to find internet back then, try to get assignments. And so that one was all distance learning, uh, trying to get as much of it done at home station. But frankly, I got a lot of it done downrange just with the well, map light and on my bunk. That's admirable. And what about what was fun about your undergraduate days? 
old University of South Florida, right up the road in Tampa. It was an uh, interesting place, <laughs> uh, put it that way. From a kid, you know, time and space. So from a kid coming from Europe and just, just my high school life was over there, a very European high school life, uh, to coming here cold, uh, no transition, graduating in Europe, coming straight to the United States was a culture shock uh, in many ways. So uh, in a good way, but in some other not so good ways, but uh, it was definitely made it interesting just being here in the U.S., uh, the, you know, the States for once and studying here and living that youthful lifestyle that uh, was different from overseas, but it was all, 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 all fun. Well, USF is a great school, but what, uh, and it is given, it is really massively grown the last 20 years. Uh, but what were the, Alex and I, our children had the same experience going, being overseas and having to adjust to college in America. It's not always easy socially as opposed to academically. What what challenges did you face? Uh, probably the biggest challenge I faced uh, was a little bit of social adjustment. Um, you know, Europe and especially Germany in, in the early 90s wasn't what it is now. It was, um, you know, it, it just it just wasn't on par with where the U.S. was um, uh, and many factors for that. But uh so when I came over here, just the cultural adjustment from what was happening there uh, with the fall of the wall and everything like that to here, more of a stable environment with, you know, as it can be with politics and the geopolitics of the area, but just a more stable aspect. Um, the other part was, you know, I'm leaving everything I've known as a young adult and, and coming here uh, alone and unafraid to a, a new continent, a new city. Um Fortunately, I had an uncle here that they'd moved from uh, Puerto Rico and they worked over here uh, in, the, in the district attorney's office. So I had a connection to family. And frankly, that was the connection that brought me to Tampa. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was uh, social and cultural for sure. So, so what, a, so, okay, so this is very interesting because you like, uh, like Harry say, art kids as well, where, you know, we're Americans, we, 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 basically, uh, uh, I'll, I'll say, demonstrating the American uh, mode, if you call it, overseas, and how, you know, how we represent ourselves. And all of a sudden, you come to the United States, but you kind of feel like, you know, you're kind of like out of place because you've never been here, right? That's the way you, mm -hmm. you, you, you I, I describe it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell you, I remember... The first day I was in my dorm, I had a roommate and, you know, music, talking about culture, music is very different over there in the early 90s. There's a lot of techno, a lot of that stuff, you know, and over here, I don't even know what was going on. But I remember having a little boombox I put on the on my on my dresser <laughs> and I said, hey, man, check out this sweet stuff. And I put in like a CD or something. of, And he looked at me like, what the hell is that, man? It was... <laughs> You know, but it was fun. He, you know, we we had an exchange of music tastes, I guess. Puerto Rican <laughs> kicking techno. That is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so you you study biology. What make you like not continue the science? You know, in a way, you know, the normal science. And I say I, I'm assuming that you went to our aeronautical science, but. Uh, 
why not? Oh, it was biology is something that you, you thought it was going to be, and then you decided to say, no, I might want to do this better. Yeah, yeah. So I started biology. I was interested in anatomy, medicine, um, you know, really rigorous type of uh, um, career field. I always just really liked that. Um, and, you know, came to USF, University of South Florida, uh, enrolled in ROTC, and then, you know, everything kind of changed from there. That, that's that's fantastic. What is <clears throat> ROTC? Is it just Air Force at USF, or do they have all branches? And what was your experience then? At the time, uh, when I went through, it was uh, Air Force and Army. Uh, they had an Army detachment there, uh, and I think they've expanded. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, at the time, it was Air Force and Army, and it was uh, definitely a healthy rivalry, so it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the army was on top of everything. <laughs> so how so how was um your your so you went to the ROTC your experience as a as a cadet over there you know basic so what you knew from the army and what you thought you knew to what that you were taught in the air force what was the contracts? Uh man, it was well. I tell you the, the one thing that the. the the memory I have most growing up uh, was uh, my, my, my dad. He'd get every day of his life for over 22 years, getting up, I mean, early <laughs> to go, go do PT. I, I, it didn't matter how senior he got. He had to get up early, go, to, go do PT, and come back. Okay, that, that's, that, those are the memories yeah. I remember. I, you know, yeah, you do too. So, uh, and I remember in ROTC, I'm like, oh, here we go. You know, no, no, it wasn't like that on the Air Force <laughs> side. We did PT. We did all that. But I remember the Army guys, they'd be out there humping around with their rucks and all this crazy stuff. And, and no, we didn't, we didn't have to do all that. You know, I was like, I like that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Join us every week for The Spotlight with The Ambassador and The Chief. The Ambassador is host Harry Thomas, and The Chief is host Alex Morales. Together, they bring you different views on today's challenges, from politics to education, security, defense, and the economy. The Ambassador and The Chief, along with their guest experts, outline new perspectives and lively discussions. Tune in to The Spotlight on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. 
If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the spotlight. And we're back with the spotlight. Back here with Lieutenant Colonel Promotable Rafael Bush, uh, <laughs> representing uh, Hispanic Heritage Month and all the achievements that Hispanic have done to a great nation. Uh, Rafa, uh, what are your hobbies? Man, my hobbies, I tell you, after, you know, being, you know, deploying and, and being gone so much and all these random things, I'd say my number one, my number one hobby uh, is my family. You know, I, I absolutely love doing things with them. We've got annual passes to the local parks. Um, we enjoy traveling. We enjoy doing things together. Um, we just, we just love being together and I love being a part of their life. And, I, and it's something that I, I never take for granted at any time. So any chance I get, uh, I, we, we try to plan something. Uh, that my assignment prior to here, we were stationed in Germany for a couple of years. And let me tell you, um, I, I told Angela, my wife, when we showed up, I said, our number one job while we're here is to fill the computer full of videos and photos of all of our trips. And let me oh. tell you, when I, when I left Germany, I remember this. I wanted to go to Croatia for vacation, and I had no leave left. I've used all my leave. I had to ask my, my boss, uh, and like, hey, boss, uh, I want to go to Croatia. Can, can I go this long weekend? And he's like, all right, here's my phone number. Let me know if anything happens. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So we did. We max performed, you know, all of that. So I absolutely enjoy doing things with my family, um, and it's just, just something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, now, on, on a lesser, not, nowhere near as close, but on the, the more terrestrial type of hobbies, uh, I've got an old 1965 convertible Mustang that uh, oh, I like. Uh, cool. Yeah, I like uh, like tinkering around with. Um, so that takes up some time. A couple weekends ago, I got to use it. Uh, my daughter's uh, high school, they had their homecoming uh, football game. And, you know, they drive the court around. Uh, in convertibles around the football field. So I got to do that. So that was a lot of fun. You know, those little cars are like museum pieces for these kids. You know, they, I, I was pointing things out in there. They're like, Hey, you know, I'll say, you see all those things in there. They're like, Hey, what are those? I'm like, those are ashtrays. You know, there's like <laughs> four ashtrays in a little, little 65 Mustang, four ashtrays, you know, I had a cassette player. Bien, oh, you know, wow. and, I say, and I said, Hey, you guys know what that is? And they're like, hmm, it's an iPhone holder. Look, your iPhone fits. And they try to put, oh, get that shit out of there, you know, <laughs> get that stuff, get that stuff out of there, you know, it's a cassette player, man, not a, not an iPhone holder. So, uh, and in my younger days, I used to love playing racquetball. Oh man, I love playing racquetball. Um, my feet are all messed up now, <laughs> you know, I'll get in there and I'll hurt for like a month. So, but, uh, yeah, those are the things I enjoy. Yeah. Hey, let's go back for one second. Um, we have listeners around the world. They don't know what Lieutenant Colonel Promotable means. Can you please explain that? I'm very serious. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's a good question. And you're absolutely right. Uh, so in, in, the, in the Air Force, in the U.S. military system, uh, an officer in the grade of Lieutenant Colonel um, that is promotable means that, that he has been selected for promotion to the next highest grade which in the, uh, the U.S. military system is the rank of colonel, at least with all the services except for the Navy. Uh, for context, 
um, a a full colonel is one rank below general officer. So everyone knows what a general is and what everyone else is. So this is one grade, one step below that. Thank you and congratulations. Not too shabby, right? I know, man. Well, no, no, I was thinking that you were talking about your convertible. Did you work? Did you build it, or you bought it? Uh, did you work on it, or did you re- did you bought it like very messed up, and that was your project, or? No, I, I got it from my dad. Um, I've had it for fourteen years now. I want to say, so you know, it, it's I it. I remember I turned when I turned thirty years old. I'm I'm in my house you know, up in the panhandle of Florida where we used to live. And, uh, you know, just like every year, my parents call me early, early as hell in the morning to say happy birthday, even though I'm I'm sleeping, but they called me. And uh, my dad calls me, he goes, hey, happy birthday, old man. I just turned 30. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And uh, and he goes, hey, why don't you look outside? I'm like, what? And I look out there, and the big old flatbed, and it, and the car sitting on it, and I'm like, oh hell, what is this? <laughs> you know? So it was a gift from my dad to me. Um, it already been restored, so it okay. was, uh, uh, you know, entero. It was full, you know, had everything, um, and a beautiful car. Um, I have a Hot Wheels that looks like it. It's not on this desk, but it's uh, it's it's pretty neat. We actually, I love that car. We enjoy it. My girls enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Like I said, it's a showpiece, a uh, uh, little piece of driving history. I mean, shoot, '65 is a long time ago, and it's uh, very interesting how things have changed. Wow, and that's pretty cool, actually. We go out there. <laughs> well, uh, I know you you cover a little bit about you know why you joined the Air Force, but is it uh, mm-hmm. because you wanted to be a pilot? Yeah, you know, I, I knew I always wanted to serve. So I, I, that was first and foremost. So I, I chose the Air Force just because it was there. And I said, okay. Um, as far as uh, aviation, um, it, it really aviation for me, uh, most people are from little children. They're like, yeah, that's what I want to be. In the 80s, uh, when I mentioned before, we were stationed uh, on an Air Force base. It was actually a Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. And I remember this well. And they had F-15s there. And again, my dad was in the Army uh, working up the road in, in Kingston in North Carolina. And I remember watching these jets come in day in and day out and just wondering. And, and the, one, the one thing that fascinated me the most uh, was what do they do? Like, these are normal human beings. And again, I was a kid. Normal human beings flying these highly complex machines. You know, and then they do all their thing, they land, and they get out and just drive regular cars. Like, how does that transition work from flying something so complex into just a normal everyday vehicle? And I would see them driving from the flight line back to their homes because they live right down the, the pilots would live down the street from me. And, and that's where the seed began. Now, I will say that from a child, I've had motion sickness issues. I mean, as a little kid, yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I know. And I tell you, as a kid, I would not do well in car rides. Airliners, 
I would get sick on airliners as a little kid. Um, so here comes and fast forward all of that to USF. I'm there at the, at the ROTC. Everyone's putting in their uh, pilot applications. You know, I, I, I was interested, but not as gung-ho as some of the others. And when the list came back on who got selected, out of my whole detachment, only one guy got selected. And it was and me. it's you? Yeah. So The Sikh guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I tell you, um, a lot of perseverance going through uh, pilot training uh, to get to where I'm at, I'm at today. Uh, but uh, I tell you, it was a love-hate relationship. I loved aviation from being from a young child, uh, but it was not easy overcoming a lot of the the, the, the motion uh, sickness issues that I had as a, as a young adult and young child. But uh, yeah, it wasn't a smooth road for sure. And it was a little bumpy, but I got here, and it was—it's been great ever since. I love, aviation is a, a massive part of my life. Massive part of my life. So, how was uh, pilot school? What was the most difficult part of pilot school? Is it the uh, the flying or mm -hmm. the books? So, yeah, it's a very good question. And before I went to pilot training, someone gave me the best bit of advice. Look. Pilot, pilot training is easy. However, it is, it's a fire hose of information that you have to learn to digest, okay? Flying is a skill that you can teach. Uh, the knowledge is what you have to attain and retain, right? So for me personally, it was the uh, just processing all of the information in your head and, and, and making sure that you understand it so you can apply it in muscle skills, in the plane, you know, stick and rudder, you know. So mm -hmm. for me, pilot training, and again, everybody's experience is different. Um, for, but for me personally, pilot training, the toughest part was processing all the data on the ground, getting my pilot scan down um, before I got into the plane, knowing the muscle memory before I got in there, of where switches were and where to look and what the, the gauges were telling me, maneuvers, how much energy, I knew airspeed wise. Know it. If I knew that, that information before I went into the cockpit, it was easy to, to recall it, right? So okay. for me, it, it was the ground stuff for sure. Uh, but once I'm, I was in the plane, totally comfortable. Uh, so comfortable, in fact, I graduated with honors from pilot training, top of my class. It was, it was a lot of fun. So the guy who used to get uh, airsick <laughs> become a pilot and got honors. Uh. That's yeah. not that's that bad. <laughs> so we're 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 talking about how how <laughs> you used to get sick in the air, and all of a sudden now you're you're on a grad in pilot school, in flight school, which is which is hilarious to me. Uh, it's funny. It's funny, but it's good actually. So it's pretty cool. So so are you were doing helicopters, or you were doing fixed wing, or what's you know how do you start it, or you did you cross over? So uh, pilot training is divided up in two, into two sections, um, primary and advanced. Uh, primary, uh, I, I'm Air Force, but I went through Navy training. It was just a joint program. So in the Navy, you start on a common aircraft. At the time, it was the T-34, a small prop aircraft. In fact, I've got the model just sitting on my desk. That's oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's what I flew in primary. Now... Depending on how well you did, you know, where you ranked, 
you got to track to three different uh, avenues. You can go fighter bomber, you can go to rotary wing helicopters, or you can go to um, uh, transport larger aircraft, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for me, again, I was at the top of my class, but I knew my physical limitations, you know, with uh, the, the motion things and everything like that. So I chose to go uh, transport larger larger aircraft uh, with the hope of ending up with aircraft ended up flying. Once you finish this phase, the first phase, you go into advanced pilot training. So I went from uh, training up near Pensacola, Florida, out to uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, which is where the, the advanced phase was for the uh, the Navy flying their T-44 King Airs, twin prop uh, aircraft. Uh, and then once you finish that, you become a winged aviator. So you get wings on your chest, uh, but you're really still not useful to the Air Force. You still have to go to uh, many other levels of training to become mission qualified, uh, instrument qualified on your special mission aircraft. And that took another a year and a half, frankly, to get all that in. So the C the 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 Keener is 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 like a C twelve. Is it? Uh, am I right? A hundred percent. Yep, it's a King Air, and that's what they used in the Navy at the time for for training the larger aircraft. Yeah. Hey, I got I got some stick in the C twelve. They're fun. This, this is fun. <laughs> I got a little bit of stick in that one. <laughs> hey, but one question is uh, okay. So you said there's three phases. I mean, three three avenues or three approach, mm-hmm. right? And it will cargo. Is it any different to fly like a big plane versus a small plane? I know the technical part, which is like the instruments and perhaps the aerodynamics of the plane. But the principle, is it the same or is it totally different each platform or each plane? Uh, each aviation is the same. Uh, the regulations that, that guide aviation, they're all the same. The, the key difference is, is when you're actually manipulating the controls of an aircraft, right? So if you're going from a fighter jet engine to a, a transport, you're going from one or two engines to four engines. So the, the aerodynamics are very, very different. Uh, we call it P-factor. It's very technical, but, you know, you lose a motor you, and, and a four-engine prop plane, it's very different from losing one of your two motors in a centerline thrust. Uh, the other key difference is speed. Uh, your thinking process has to be a lot faster in a faster-moving jet versus a slower-moving uh, transport aircraft. So it has to be a lot faster, a lot quicker versus the other way where you have a little more time to think about things. Okay. Okay. So that, that's, that's, that's pretty good. So basically, if you got four, four engines, you could lose one engine and you could still fly, right? Depending on your weights, uh, my <laughs> aircraft, uh, we were pretty heavy a lot of times. Three engine, you could do pretty well, but once you've lost two, you're, you're, in, you're in trouble big time. And then you're, you're fighting the P factor. So the P factor, if these are your four motors and you lose these two, the plane's going to keep doing oh, this, right? Okay, you're going to flip and that vertical one stab, side. Yeah, the vertical stabilizer in the back, you've got to use a lot of force to keep the plane straight and keep it from flipping over on you. So it's a lot of work, a lot of work if you get in that position. You're, you're preparing to bail out, put it that way. <laughs> and we're preparing to bail out. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Join us every week for the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. The Ambassador is host Harry Thomas, and the Chief is host Alex Morales. Together, they bring you different views on today's challenges, from politics to education, security, defense, and the economy. The Ambassador and the Chief, along with their guest experts, outline new perspectives and lively discussions. Tune in to The Spotlight on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the Spotlight. And we're back with the Spotlight and Lieutenant Colonel Rafael Bush, Boricuas en la Luna. So go ahead, Harry. Hey, Colonel, please let us know, what is your favorite plane to fly? Yeah, th there is absolutely no question what my favorite plane to fly is, and uh, it is the mighty AC-130U Spooky Gunship. Uh, the mighty AC-130U, it is, some people are highly familiar with the gunship, uh, some people are not. Um, it's, uh, a lot of people remember the, the Vietnam, you know, mm -hmm. Puff the Magic Dragon, the side-firing AC-47 uh, aircraft. Those were the original spooky gunships. Uh, several decades later, in a lot of uh, research and development, uh, we ended up with my aircraft that I flew extremely proudly for over 21 years, uh, the AC-130U Spooky Gunship. Uh, I tell you, the, the, the plane is, it, it, well, put it this way, I mean, it's brought me home uh, from no, numerous combat deployments. You know, the number one rule of flying a gunship is always expect to be fired upon, especially when firing. Okay. And the fact that you have gun in the name of your aircraft, you're always firing, you know, you know, you're always going to be in a position where you have to employ your weapons. So, you know, it, that means expect something to come back at you. And we did, but this plane, I tell you, highly, extremely well built. Um, like I said, I, I can't say enough about her. She's uh, just a, a fantastic piece of machinery. Um, you know, high demand, low density aircraft, you know, and when the history books are, are, are done and written, I tell you, it, it, per capita, this small number of aircraft that we had out, out down range will have an outsized impact on the on counter VEO global war on terror when the history books are written uh, over the past 20 years. What, what my unit that I was a part of and what we all did over that time frame is absolutely out, outstanding, uh, not spoken out enough about. Uh, maybe some due to the classification, uh, but others just, just due to the knowledge gap. And there are so few. Everyone knows what a bomber is and this and that. But uh, an AC-130, A for attack, is, uh, you know, one of those planes that you just it, you, you just can't, you know, just 
make out of the blue. It takes decades of R&D to make one of these things and uh, very proud to fly them. In fact, um, I, I've got, uh, so my aircraft, we, uh, we shot, uh, we have three weapon systems on my aircraft, a 25 millimeter uh, cannon, which is, this is not a live round, but this is a, a facsimile of live round. Yeah, look, check it out. Uh, this is this is a 25 mil round. We carry 3,000 rounds of this aboard my plane. Uh, the next round I have here is a 40 millimeter Bofors cannon. I don't have the top half of this, but uh, they would cl come in clips of four. Now, the Army knows a 40 mil uh, round. This is not that. This is a Bofors cannon. So this came off of the World War II ships, the anti-aircraft guns that you see in the movies, the pom-pom guns they shot oh, you know, wow. at a time. This is what they are. In fact, a lot of these, if you look on the strike plate, you won't be able to see it, but they, a lot of them will have a Navy anchor on them. The, the rounds are just that old. They're from World War II. And then the last gun we had was the, the 105 uh, millimeter howitzer, which is a normal Army field artillery piece that we decided to put in the back of a plane and, and shoot it. Uh, that shell I don't have with me handy, but it's about a 47 pound shell. It's massive. But, so I love the gunship. That's my baby. Well, you know, actually, I know what a bombardier is. You know what a bombardier is. But many of our listeners, especially overseas, don't know the difference between a fighter, a gunship. Uh, I'm always asking Alex and those about the uh, difference between a C-130 and C-17. So what's the difference between a gunship and a fighter or a bomber? So uh, a gunship, um, there, there's a, a mission set in aviation. And, and frankly, this started, I want to say World War II, or World War I, I'm sorry. Um, it, it probably wasn't called this, but uh, it, it is what it ended up being, called close air support. Mm -hmm. So when you are supporting a ground force in any conflict, you, you have to provide at times fires, uh, fire support to that ground force moving forward. It happened in Normandy. It happened all throughout World War II uh, and definitely in parts of World War I. So that aircraft providing precision, that's the key, precision fires in support of a ground force, that, that mission is called close air support. The gunship, the AC-130U and the other variant, that's what we do. We are absolute experts in that skill craft none better in the world. That's what we do. Close air support, precision fires with limited uh, collateral damage, almost none. Okay. Now you've got uh, fighters. Fighters can do close air support. Uh, but a lot of times when they do close air support, they're dropping a 500 pound bomb, you know, where I can drop this with almost no collateral damage and a 500 pound bomb can, can have catastrophic effects. You may want that. Uh, now a bomber. A bomber, uh, you know, think B-52. Everyone knows what those things are. The massive uh, bombers from uh, Vietnam. Uh, we still have them today. Uh, and those, they just drop massive munitions, carpet bomb if you need to. I will say in the modern era that they have, uh, all of these assets have smart munitions. So they can drop GPS and laser guided now. So they can limit collateral damage. It's not like the videos where they just drop hundreds of rounds or bombs. Now, it's very different nowadays. They still can, but they don't in the conflicts we're currently engaged in or actually just recently left. So those are the big differences uh, between the three uh, attack type of platforms, from bombers to fighters and to gunships. Thank you. I'm, I'm more educated, and I hope our audience is too. 
So when when you say they shot at you, does does the rounds go through the skin of the plane, or do you guys have some type of armor that protect you guys? Or just out of curiosity, if you can't speak about that. Yeah. So the the aircraft did uh, does have armor. Uh, it did at once upon a time, um, and the armor uh, covered the vital lines, uh, hydraulic lines uh, okay. along the, the center of the aircraft there. So there, it, it did have armor. They had armor near the pilots were down near our feet, you know, in that, in that side on, you know, where we're in orbit. Um, so there was armor to protect us, yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're still getting shot at it. So <laughs> not fun. I think you should uh, – have you ever done any recruiting, not as a tour, but as a uh, part-time or when you have a chance to go back to USF? No, I'm serious because you're so passionate about uh, the the service you've done for our nation along with your, your colleagues. That comes through. Um, but have you done any of that? Yeah, uh, actually, I've done quite a bit of that. Um, in fact, in, uh, next week, I'm going to USF to be part of their career day. So uh, they asked me to come out as a graduate alumni uh, to come out and talk about uh, what I've done, uh, you know, in the past and, and, and what I've seen and, and push that knowledge down to cadets. Um, I love that. I, I, any, anytime those opportunities are presented, I, I take them every chance, every chance. Uh, th those are priority for me to get that knowledge down, to instill that enthusiasm in one, aviation, the Air Force, and then two, you know, special operations in particular, my love, my, my career. That is fantastic. Hey, uh, you've been in, uh, involved in testing of special mm -hmm. forces aircraft and battle system works. Can you just talk a little bit about that? What does that, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, I'll try to keep it in the time limit because it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. So, yeah, just overall. Uh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, before uh, coming to uh, SOCOM, my current job, I was a uh, flight test squadron commander at Hurlburt. So what that meant was I tested um, aircraft all the way down to battlefield systems. So if I needed to test a new kit that allowed a combat controller to measure the runway strength of the, the runway condition uh, with a Bluetooth device, so we would do that. I mean, everything in between, we, we would operationally test it. So testing, as, as we all know, um, there's two types of testing, developmental and operational. Uh, by law, uh, the only one that is required is operational testing, which is what I did. So developmental testing is, did we build the thing right? Did we build it to spec, mil spec and to code? Okay. What operational testing is, does it did work? We build the, did we build the right thing? Not the thing right, the right thing. So um, I've got a chart here. I'll show you. Hopefully you can see it. So any widget, you, you see how crazy this thing is. You're not supposed to be able to read it, but you can see all the crap that's on here, right? Yeah. This is a very toned down version of the acquisition life cycle. So out here is where something begins as a gap. And then yeah. out here is where it's fielded. All right. Testing is a vital part of that because in operational test, when I assess something, we use a scientific test method called design of experiment. Uh, when I test something, after all the rigor I apply, I provide a fielding recommendation to 
uh, and uh, Air Force Special Operations Command, it was the A3. I, a fielding recommendation, boss, I recommend fielding, or boss, I do not. Now, for an 05 squadron commander to have that kind of, you know, weight and push is a, is a pretty rare thing. And I direct reported to that general who is A3 with my fielding recommendation. And I would give the reasons why or why not. Or maybe we'd recommend it and say, no, nah, but they need, to they need to change this one thing. Because when, when a guy pulls a trigger at that point, his, his, his glove gets caught on this other thing. You got to take that off of there, right? So we would test everything. And, and like I said, it's a very rigorous process. Um, it's a scientific method, the same every time. It doesn't matter if I'm testing the pen or a, a new gunship, which we did, by the way. We tested the, the latest gunship, the new AC-130J, which is a, a, a massive program, and we got to test it, and it was absolutely fantastic. One of the best jobs I've ever had um, doing operational tests. Uh, I, I couldn't say more about it. It just, it just, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So you basically, to our audience, you, you tried to see if it works in real life. Operationally representative, yes. <laughs> That's what we called it. Yeah, we needed a uh, operationally representative, which made it even better because developmental test does the stuff in the lab, sterile, very you know. But no, what we need to be in operational environment. So when we tested the new gunship, we had to go to the Pacific Missile Range facility in Kauai, which is in Hawaii. You know, operation representative area, White Sands Missile Range. You got to go out there for the high desert when we're shooting hellfires, you know, it's, oh, it's lots of fun. Lots of fun. <laughs> okay, Harry. That is amazing. I'm still stuck on how precise you are that a glove uh, could, the size of a ring finger or a glove has to be changed. That That's, that's amazing to me. Um, how do we dispel the image though? Uh, if, that we see in the press that these these assets are overcost, outdated, and you know a drain on the exchequer. What would you say to a member of the media giving that assertion? Well, it, it, so it depends on what where, what angle you're coming from, right? So a lot of those questions could be loaded depending on what their background is or where they're coming from and asking the question, but. You know, coming, being a military brat uh, and being an American, I want my, my, my forces to have the best there is. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you right now, they absolutely get, uh, again, I was in special operations testing. So I can tell you right now, the kit that special operators get is bar none the best in the world. Uh, now, I, I can't put a price tag on that. People can, but all I can say is being a part of that huge chart that I showed you, that everyone in that in that chart, thousands of people involved in this, and I've dealt with most of them. They are they all have one priority: making sure that that piece of kit that gets on an operator or an air crew member or whoever is the best that can be fielded. There, there is no question about it. Uh, now, you know, the acquisitions officers. That's not what I am, but I worked with a lot of them. You know, cost and schedule. That's what they're worried about: cost, keeping them down, and schedule. Let's get it done early or on time, right? So trust me, to your point, there's someone there cracking the whip nonstop. And it was usually a guy like me saying, oh, hold on, we need a, that glove was wrong or that MVG goggle was wrong because it doesn't, they can't see out the side or whatever the case was, we need to put more time in it. 
they didn't like me most of the time. I'm the one demanding more excellence out of it. But but the checks and balances are there for sure. No, thank you so much. That we need to hear more of that from DOD, in my opinion, <laughs> given to the American people, uh, because that's not what often comes through, even in this polit politicized uh, world. But uh, thank you, Alex. So, and this, we got about two minutes left. Uh, what's next for you, Colonel? Oh boy! So I'm I'm looking I'm looking at uh, the horizon for me. You know, this is an old this is young man's game, and I'm <laughs> I'm done with this. No, 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 no. So yeah, uh, I'm looking here. Uh, you know, looking to transition in the next uh, year or so. You know, a little a little over that. So just to see what's next for for Rafael and uh, what's next for the Bosch family. You know, you, you know, you can't do, you can't keep doing something you love um, and do it well. You know, you, you got sometimes you got to let it go, um, and I know that. So I, it's something I love. I, I hold it very close and dear to my heart. But I know it's the next generation's job to pick it up and, and move it along. So um, yeah, we're just looking, you know, seeing what's out there for uh, on the horizon. <laughs> well, Harry, take us out, Lieutenant Colonel Promotable. <laughs> want to thank you so much for not only your service, your father's service, your mother and your wife, as well as your daughter's mm -hmm. service to our nation. Mm -hmm. And we really appreciate your rep being able to represent our country in this, in this, in this time and with so many things going on. So we thank you. Uh, we'll turn it over to, to Alex to take us out. And celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month as a Boricua, I thank you for support, for your service, for representing us well, and thank you for being the spotlight. Thank you for tuning into the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Be sure to join Chief Alex Morales and Ambassador Harry Thomas again on the Voice America Variety Channel.